Okay, it's just turned uh, 6 p.m. in Dubai, and I guess 4 p.m. in Berlin, and 7 a.m. in San Francisco. It's time for us to get started. And today we have a very interesting topic, uh, which has been decided by Teresa and Philip jointly. And they're gonna be talking about, uh, you know, the much awaited marriage of strategy and culture. Uh, I believe this is a very important topic in present times. Um, culture is huge in terms of, you know, making an organization efficient and strategy always has to marry culture for both to work in tandem. So I have, uh, you know, two people who are best in this domain, in my opinion, and they are Tirza Hollenhorst, who's coming in this morning from San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Tirza. And we are joined with Philip Horwitz who's also a partner in Lumen, and he's coming in from Berlin. So we have three continents already in the room. Um, I am from Dubai, uh, Tirza is uh, from Frisco, and Philip is coming in from Berlin. So um, let's get started, Philip. I'd like you to uh, introduce yourself in depth, let our audience know how long you've been in this domain and, and what you really do. So I'm just going to hand it over to you for an introduction, and then possibly you can uh, share the screen and your presentation with our audience. So over to you, Philip. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Gerard, and thank you for the welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning, this afternoon, this evening. So very excited to be here with you today and talk about such an important topic with Gerard uh, and uh, Terza. And um, Terza is here with me. Terza is our CEO at Lumen. Um, but before I introduce her really briefly to my background, and why strategy and culture matter to me so much. And I started my career originally when I was about 10, started programming, building databases as a kid, and then worked in educational technology, where even in the late 90s, we already talked about VR and AI and quantum computing coming very, very soon. And I've been eagerly waiting ever since. But uh, we've been you know, working in technology, working in big, large-scale enterprise transformation projects, and all about strategy. But what I found, what, what wasn't working was the culture. But how people were treating each other, how people were working with each other. And this is where my sort of parallel career really helped because I studied psychology. And since I was a child, did yoga and meditation and similar trainings around how to really be human and how to work with humans and how to relate in different ways. And so I found that really these two of culture and strategy, they have to get together and that we have to bring different perspectives to the table. And one of the perspectives, you know, which I really enjoy is my business partner, Terza here. And sometimes we look at the same thing from very, very opposite things, but because we have a common purpose in higher things, we keep uh, evolving new ideas out of it and using it for creativity. Maybe Terza tell the audience a little bit about your background and what brought you in this field, because it's similarly, you know, both brain halves connecting in your, your world as well. Thank you, Philip. Yeah, so I um, the early days of my career were spent building international networks of organizations working on corporate social responsibility. And in doing that, I really got to see how it was one thing for us to align around what we were doing together, our strategy, um, but that those could mean very different things based on the, the kind of cultural backgrounds people were bringing because we were working internationally and these were very early days of the internet. Um, and then I founded uh, my first company, a technology company, where we were supporting um, um, complex nonprofits and other um, socially driven organizations in their move onto the internet. And this had us really 
digging into not just business process and strategy, but then underneath that, who they were as an organization. And I got very interested in what actually like makes organizations work underneath the hood. Um, and then Philip and I came together with this really common understanding that we could have incredible innovation tools, but it was also who we were being in the innovation process that would define um, the outcome and whether we were successful building a new initiative, a new business, um, a new technology. And I'm really excited about this conversation because I feel that we've just reached the point where uh, the larger business world is actually really ready to appreciate the, st the strategy of culture um, and the, the culture that underlines our strategy. Um, back to you, Philip. Yeah. Uh, just the other day, uh, 2022 was called the year of workplace culture, right? Thanks to the shifts of the last couple of years, people have just become aware of that work is not just work, right? Because we can meet each other virtually and get stuff done, but the other part is missing, right? And there's really some major key transformation points that we're actually at, even in spite of, you know, beyond the things that happened in the last years, there's also ultimate other factors that are really influencing and shaping our future right now. And one we just talked about before we got on here is the technological innovation. We have completely new ways of structuring ourselves, completely new ways of identifying individuals and their contribution, right, through blockchain technologies, through distributed ledger technologies. There's the metaverse conversation that Sharad is also gracefully hosting in, in his webinar series here, where he's talking a lot about these new, new developments that are happening there with Web 3.0 in an upcoming webinar as well. So typically when we think about future, we think about technology. But at the same time, we're also aware of the fact that it's 46 degrees in Dubai right now. And, you know, there's weather around the world, which is not normal. Right? And we'll, we'll be noticing that now it's really becoming very tangible that there is something going on on this whole planet here. And that we're also becoming more aware of each other as humans on this planet together. Right? And so there's also a awareness of that ecosystem that we actually live in. Right? Where today we are joining each other from San Francisco, Dubai and Berlin in the same call and from uh, Dubai as well. Sanish, welcome, right? And we're and welcome to everybody else. I'm sure you're in some other places on top of that, right? So in very, very different places, we also see each other. And as a result of that, there's also a cultural shift that's happening globally. Right? Before culture was very centralized and very localized in how things changed. But now culture is having everywhere all at the same time. Right? TikTok doesn't know borders, right? TikTok doesn't care where you live, right? And so there's some changes there. And there's also some new values that are coming up. Right. We've seen Black Lives Matter explode, the Me Too movement, new pronouns that are happening, where there's an entire new movement around honoring individuals in a new way and honoring our connectedness and togetherness in a new way, right? but also honoring the individual. And there's changes there, right? there's an individual evolution that has happened, both on the consumer side as well as also on the employee side. Employees want to now work for companies that actually do something meaningful in the world, even more so than ever. Right? When in the US last year uh, during covid two-thirds of American employees Googled the word purpose, right? Because people are worried. They're like wondering, what am I doing with my life here? Am I just going to work? Right? So there's a personal evolution that's also happening, right? And also an evolution of the customer who don't want to buy products from companies that they know destroy our future, right? So there's all these shifts happening and we get to think about what we want the human future to look like. And for that, we need some shifts here, right, Tessa? Yeah, so we have this like um, really wonderful idea of a high-performing team that was brought to us by the kind of leadership work of the 90s and the knots. 
Um, but in our work with organizations like AMD and Facebook and Siemens, we're really beginning to see um, this move and this need toward also having an understanding that teams need to be future ready. Um, that high performing and what we think of high performing and the literature behind high performing encompasses some great things and we'll go through them, but it doesn't also speak to what teams are facing now. So on a high performing team, we have this idea that we need to be consistent, that we're going to deliver with consistency, but in a rapidly changing world, we also need to be agile. We need to be ready to respond to what's happening. On a high-performing team, we wanted really low error rates. And we had this idea of Six Sigma um, and, and this constant continuous improvement. But now we're also facing a need to have high velocity where there's a trade-off with errors. We need to, in a high-performing team, we wanted to have this um, idea of being really well-tuned, that we were going to like be able to function really well together. And that's great, but now we need to be very highly attuned because there's rapid changes in the system around us. And so what we were well-tuned for in the past may not be what's happening in the current moment because things can change literally on a day-to-day -day basis. We also thought that we needed to be kind of homogenous. We were all trying to do things the same way. But on a future-ready team, we also need to be, we know we need to be heterogeneous, that we're coming with different perspectives and a variety of talents. On an old and on the high performing model, we were looking for low friction. We had really refined job descriptions and very clean handoffs. But now we're looking for creative conflict. We're looking for people to bring their genius and their ideas to the table for us to really begin to like bring it together and hash it out. Those low touch handoffs of the past, where we knew we could just tick things forward and they moved through the ERP. Now are really becoming high touch handoffs where I have to like make sure you understand the context of where this is coming from and who this is going to. We also had a hierarchy of people that worked really well in, in the high performing team era, but we're moving toward also having a hierarchy of purpose where individuals need to be able to respond to the conditions around them without going all the way up and then back down the chain. And we in the past could be very product centric. We were all focused on a very clear product that we were improving and putting out there. But as products need to evolve so quickly now, we need to be very customer centric and ensure that we're continuously serving um, our customer and being willing to evolve our product really rapidly to continue to meet our customers' needs. And finally, in, as we built this idea of the high-performing team, we were um, basing that on these large, complex ERPs. And those were like an amazing for that era, but now we're in this Web3 era where things are increasingly virtualizing and we're really pulling together um, a whole variety of tools to um, meet our continuously evolving needs. Philip, you're muted. <laughs> I do this for a living, pardon me. Um, so there was a sentence of 2020 in the 2020s, right? But um, so when you look at these two things, right, it's not an either or, as Tosa just said, they're additive, right? We need both, even though they might seem contradictory, right? Unless it's the same thing when we talk about strategy and culture. It's a yes and, right? we need both. And one symbol that is used around the world oftentimes is sort of a dualism sign, right? When people see that yin yang, it's like, oh, left and right, you know, black and white, women and men, right? It's like that typical symbol for dualism, 
right? But uh, it seems like that when we look at strategy and culture too, right? It seems like this here strategy is culture, and there's things like culture and strategy for breakfast, and talks about that. But we think they need to together, right? Because even there, if you look at this DAO, there's actually not just two dimensions in this, right? The first is obvious, right? I exist here, and then there's another, right? And then there's also the third realization that I exist in the other as well, right? There is a little white dot in the black dot and a black part in the white part in the black dot, right? And the same, that also the realization that the other exists in me, right? So we already have four dimensions here, right? And then there's actually a fifth, which is the fact that there's dynamic, right? There's not just a static line in black and white, left and right, but there's a squiggly line here, right? Which actually indicates that it's a constant evolution and it's a constant mirroring of each other. And through that mirroring with each other, is how we evolve, right? And we evolve ultimately towards wholeness, right? Around the world, a circle is a symbol for wholeness. So in the end, there is a wholeness here, right? In spite of our fractioning, in spite of our separation, it's also natural, right? We have to be separate to have an experience, but there's also moving towards wholeness, right? And ultimately, if you understand that, you can stand outside of this and actually observe that path and realize that it's all part of an infinite game. Right? And so this is just one example of how we, you know, kind of look at things and we see black and white and we see dualism, but there's so many more dimensions if we zoom out, right? And the same is true with strategy and culture, right? It's not an either or, it's a both and, right? And this future actually requires an integration of strategy and culture. And both are actually changing too, right? Because the basic underlying metaphor of how we operate is shifting. With this new technology, we have all kinds of new ways of organizing ourselves. And with new culture, we have a new requirement to organize ourselves in new ways. Right? This idea of the organization as this big tanker, right? where if you do really well, you might one day be in the captain's chair and steer that big tanker. That's a very outdated metaphor. It's about as old as that oil that this tanker is running on. Right? Because today we look at this world and it's really more like a drone swarm. Right? There's all these little bits and pieces and everybody is doing their own thing unless it's coordinated and there's some sense of coherence here, right? And for that, we need a new kind of strategy and we need a new kind of culture, right? For the five-year, the, the tanker had a nice five-year strategy plan that worked well in a relative certainty when I knew that it was just gonna go across the ocean very slowly, right? And that worked. But if I'm doing this, I need very, very different tools. Right? And this brings us to a completely new culture, right, Tilden? Yeah, so culture, we can come up with a lot of definitions and we could speak for hours on the definition of culture, but using a really simple, it's really just how we do things around here. Um, and there's all kinds of cues and symbols and um, patterns that have us show up in certain ways. Um, but if you think about culture, like there's a way that we are and how we act when we show up in a cathedral um, or some really big building. And then there's a way that we'll act um, when we just kind of walk in to a bustling marketplace. Um, there's different cues that we get from each of those places. But sometimes in defining, it's helpful to talk about what culture isn't. So culture is not about making it just like, um, about it being like kind of woo-woo because there's nothing theoretical or spiritual about how we run meetings, but how we show up for meetings is a really key aspect of our culture. It's not just soft skills. A really good culture will actually be very supportive and give tools to those people who have the most limited soft skills. Culture is not just about engagement. So a strategically designed culture will promote engagement, but most engagement efforts don't actually build culture. They're kind of like add-on team building things. Culture is not just HR's job. 
So we've kind of relegated culture to HR, but really because culture affects the external brand, the customer experience and strategy implementation, we really need the many people in the organizations and really everyone being stewards of a, of a culture. Culture is not just kombucha and foosball. So sometimes we tack on these things that make it like a fun place to work um, or are a hospitable place to work. And hospitality and camaraderie are really important aspects of culture, but they don't define it. And finally, it's not about making this a nice place to work. Low friction, low feedback, and high tolerance for breakdowns are a choice, and you can choose to organize your culture around that. Um, but an, it isn't an idealized form of culture. Um, we can actually have great cultures that have a great deal of friction, are high feedback, um, and have a, um, a low tolerance for breakdown and can still be psychologically safe, highly functional places to work. So some like just guidelines about what culture is. Fundamentally, how we do anything is how we do everything. And so you can look to any small bit of culture and actually see the entirety of the organization's culture encompassed in any one thing, like how we show up for meetings. Culture will determine what you measure and what you consider success. So how we think about ourselves is ultimately going to shape what we think success looks like. Culture ultimately determines our strategy because we develop our strategy as a team and it comes from who we are and how we show up together. And so that what we may think of as a purely mental exercise will actually be determined by um, the culture and who we be together. Culture is going to really determine what people do when they're under stress and when things are disrupted. And so these times when the plan kind of gets thrown out the window, whether people show up strategically is really determined by the culture. And ultimately, the, how the brand shows up in the marketplace and throughout the whole customer journey is defined by the culture. So we can have a really great marketing message, but if someone calls up to customer service and they are met with a very different experience than who the organization says it is, it's really about how the customer interacts with customer service that defines how they perceive the brand. And we, when we begin to think about culture, it really is that these little things matter. Our meeting culture is one of the most important aspects of culture, how we complete or don't complete things, how we relate inside the team and across silos, and many, many other small things. But it really is a accumulation of little patterns that actually make our culture. And Philip, you want to talk about strategy? Oh, and then you say about talk about the little culture, a little pieces that ultimately create that. If you think about an organization, there's sort of the idea of a big plan, right? When people think strategy is this like gigantic plan, and we know where we're going and we know what we're doing, right? But really, we like to think of strategy as a coherent set of mutually reinforcing choices. Right, come back to those drone swarms, right? When you have a lot of people as they make decisions, and every little decision uh, of the organization reflects its culture. But a very beautiful example came back in the day from Southwest Airlines, for example. They called themselves the low-cost airline, right? And their mantra was, we are the low-cost airline. And as their mantra could actually allow everybody in the organization to make decisions. Whether it was the woman who wondered about whether they should have peanuts or, or chicken on the flight to Vegas, right? She, we are the low-cost airline, could very easily make that decision. Same thing with the baggage handler who was wondering, should I send that luggage today or tomorrow? 
we are the low cost airline, right? So there was a coherent idea around how, what, what to aim your decisions around, right? And this is ultimately how your strategy comes to life in many, many, many little decisions in every little meeting, you know, how we complete things like Tessa was just saying. Right? And what strategy is not is, it's not about micromanagement, right? It's not about telling everybody exactly what to do. This idea that we can do that in a world, right? If you didn't think about how long it takes to trickle down corporate ladder and you all know the telephone game, but that's not going to work. It's not about telling people exactly what to do. Right? It's also not about keeping it super secret, right? Where only a few people know what's up and what the strategy is, right? Because that will create a tremendous uncertainty in your organization. And if there's no transparency about where you're going, people will start making up their own stories and create all kinds of things as a result of it, right? And completely screwed up dynamics. Right? It's also not just your purpose or your mission, right? Because that's your aim for. That's this big, vague idea of we're kind of trying to get into this direction. Well, that strategy has to be much, much clearer than that, right? It is the orientation here with the purpose, but then what, what, what is giving you the actual tools to make decisions about how you're making that purpose real? That's really your strategy here. Right? And it's also not just about goals and KPIs, right? When people think about uh, strategy, they often think just about metrics, right? And numeric metrics and financial metrics on top of that. Since the craze in the 90s, where it was cool to buy companies up and chop them up and, and you know, make money out of, you know, essentially letting everybody go and selling the assets, since then, it's been this, you know, fascination on optimizing your PL and optimizing your balance sheet and optimizing, optimizing, optimizing. But actually, studies have shown that if you purely focus on KPIs and financial KPIs in particular, the quality of your product or service erodes, and eventually you lose customers in your business altogether. So it's also not very helpful to confuse strategy with just focusing on some metrics. And it's also not the plan, right? Because the plan, again, has some very dis distinct steps of how you're going there, right? It's already like a sort of a micro pieces or in pieces you can plan for something. But then, as Tosa said, you also have to continuously attune to what's actually happening in the moment, right? And that is also part of your strategy. So your plan, your strategy could be to dump your plan and create a new one, you know what I mean? So there's also that aspect of it. And it's also not just a vision, right? There's a beautiful saying that, uh, a vision without a plan is just a dream, and a, a plan without a vision is drudgery, right? And so it's neither one of those two things, right? It's actually the thing that works around and it's setting the container for where these things happen. And there's a beautiful quote by Costas Marquides, who actually brings it right back down to this very, very clear thing about what's a business about. When he says strategy is about making choices, who, what, and how, right? Who is the customer you're focusing on? Who are you serving? What are you going to sell? And how are you going to deliver that value proposition? Pretty straightforward, right? But that's what business ultimately is, unless we make it complicated. And there's a lot of culture in strategy, right, Tessa? Yeah, so we really look at how culture begins to affect like how our strategy is actually implemented. So who we serve. Um, once we've decided who we're going to serve and we've got our demographic or our psychographic or however we're really determining our market, we need to understand what they're looking for from us. Um, in an increasingly Web3 world, who the brand is, is really who it, how it shows up in a community. Um, and that's going to that can't be all things or really it's no thing. So are, are people looking for us to show up with like security and predictability as we would want from some of our institutions? Or are they looking for friendliness and adaptability? Those are cultural aspects, but ultimately they come from our strategy of who we are serving and how we want to meet them. Um, and then how we show, actually show up in the marketplace in terms of our products, are they looking for us to be 
like innovative and agile or reliable with lasting value. These, again, they're strategic choices, but then they trickle down into the culture and the entire aspect of the customer experience, because I don't want to be buying something for lasting value, but then experience customer service is being totally unavailable. Whereas if I'm looking for something that's on the cutting edge, I'm probably expecting that there might be a few glitches along the way. Um, And so appreciating that this strategy then plays out into our entire um, product development, how quickly we want our cycles to be, um, what our tolerance for error is, and then ultimately what the customer journey looks like. And that's super transparent in today's day and age, right? Because we live in a world where we have, you know, employees you know, and, and customers participating in social media, sharing the experience of your company. And so there's this whole transparency, and especially in today's day and age where we see each other sometimes in our living rooms, we see each other with our kids and dogs and cats, right? We see each other across the planet, right? Where there's a huge new transparency that, that we can't hide from. Right? And we care about supply chains now and what's happening there. And some of these new DLT distributed ledger technologies, et cetera, can help us get to a place where we have more transparent supply chains. And as things are becoming more transparent, we're also realizing that we are diverse as a you know, human race around the planet. And it's actually awesome. We need diversity right now. Right? We need, as Tosa said earlier, we need multiple perspectives on the situation. Because especially when you have a lot of uncertainty, right? no strategy is the right one. Right? We need to actually go find out how this is going to work together. Right? And there's a beautiful African saying that if you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. Right? And so we need to find ways to create the psychological safety, et cetera, in our culture to make it possible for diversity to actually flourish. And within that, we have to ask ourselves about our values. Right? If you have an AI today and we just put it on the data set that we have, then, for example, if I want to look, would look for a new board member of a company in Germany, I would be pretty sure that the AI would say the guy should be called Thomas, right? Or if in America, ask somebody in Arizona, if an ask an AI based on the arrest records of the Arizona police who should be incarcerated, it would probably be a person of color, right? So AI is ex- as biased as we have been, right? So we need to actually make sure that we actually adjust our algorithms and put some additional variables in there that determine where we go in the right direction, right? And being those pieces are strategic decisions, Right. Coming back to what is our strategy around what we are solving for, right? and also what we are contracting, right? what we are committing to creating right? from the brand promise of our very organization to how we're showing up in the marketplace and how individuals are relating. And especially in a world where a lot of this is going to be automated with you know, uh, DAOs or similar mechanisms there where we use smart contracts, right? those contracts are just as smart as the person who's signing them. Right? It's like too long, didn't read. How often have we clicked on terms and conditions that we don't read? Right? But we have to be aware of what's happening there now. Because everything has much, much faster consequence today. Right? A decision today uh, can make immediate impact tomorrow. Right? We've seen it again and again with large companies that overnight, suddenly, you know, a, a former cash cow turned into a liability overnight. Right? Because of some new legislation or because of a climate situation or because of political situations. But all kinds of things can happen very, very quickly. And because we are in t- tied into a bigger ecosystem, right? we are connected and more aware to the world around us. And we all know now that we leave footprints in the sand. Right? We can't deny that. And within that, people are asking themselves, what are we doing here? Right? More and more, we've heard about the great resignation. As I said, I mentioned earlier, how many people have Google purpose, but 44% of employees are currently looking for a new job. Right? Because they're looking at the potential of when COVID hit, they looked at the potential of dying 
maybe for the first time in their life. And they thought, wow, what am I doing here? Do I really just want to go to a job eight, you know, nine to five every day that I don't even care about? Right? So there's a shift in that culture as well. And that has to be now, you know, demands us to make sure that we approach culture strategically. So if we don't um, design our culture strategically, let's talk a bit about what happens because really most organizations, we kind of have a default culture. Um, and in organizations that often reflects the strengths and weaknesses of the founders um, or kind of replicates the behaviors of the most enrolling, not necessarily the best behaved, just the most enrolling. Um, and so we, we know how even organizations like Apple um, reflected the priorities and the strengths and weaknesses of, of Steve Jobs, even after he had passed away. Um, his values and his ways of being like still permeated the culture. So cultures that are not strategically designed will also kind of hold on to and repeat mistakes. They become embedded. And so it, we not only don't learn from our mistakes, but actually the behaviors kind of get self-reinforced within the organization where we start, um, you know, people get punished for mistakes. And so there's more covering uh, up of, of errors. And then that leads to more mistakes. It's, it's insidious. Um, we also will begin to deliver against the measurements of individual ma managers while failing to appreciate how those outcomes ladder up. So think about a customer service center, which is trying to process the maximum number of people in the shortest amount of time, but is actually failing to appreciate how that is actually delivering on customer satisfaction across the board. Um, and we will also have cultures and organizations that become just very reactive to new signals um, rather than proactively designing things. And so we, many of us have probably had the experience of working with people who start to chase the next shiny thing without really being clear of how that fits into what we're already doing. And people end up feeling very jerked around. And these are just some of the things that begin to happen when we don't proactively design our culture and we, we rely on just kind of letting it emerge. Mm -hmm. Because cult I mean, culture comes from agriculture, right? It's like a garden. And a garden, if you don't tend to it, will grow weeds. Right? And so how do you actually set yourself up to create your culture strategically? How do you plant your garden consciously and attend to it consciously? And we, we call that strategic culture design. And this is uh, one of the frameworks we use for how to approach this ephemeral thing, right? Because culture in the end happens in the interference pattern of how people show up, right? You can, this is why 70 to 80% of cultural transformation initiatives fail, right? Because people come in and they plaster the walls with, hey, we are people company, right? Posters. And then they expect that that's going to happen the next day, which is not obviously necessarily going to happen. And the contrary, as I said, once you get into those dynamics, oftentimes they're self-enforcing and you even reach the opposite of what you're trying to reach. Right? So when we think about cultural design, what we do is we really at the beginning to think about the bigger picture archetypes, right? The customer, what is an employee like? What are these different, who are the heroes and villains in our story, right? Kind of really looking at that very high level, right? And from there, understanding what are the core principles that are driving us. Like what Tosa was saying earlier, right? These actually what we choose to measure to, uh, success, right? The, the cultural piece actually decides what, what KPIs we're going to look at, right? So what principle, what values and beliefs are we following as a company? 
And how are we wrapping them in stories? Uh, Tessa mentioned Steve Jobs, or another gentleman who was just mentioned the other day, uh, Jack Welch, right, who in some ways single-handedly created corporate America, this idea of corporate America in so many ways because of his persona. And when I worked with GE a lot, there was all these stories about Jack, right, when it came to how do we solve this? Well, there's a story by Jack where he had a similar problem, right, and there was this constant decision-making support through stories. Right. And even if you look at our elders, you know, even in native traditions, when people have decisions to make, they pull on stories. Right. So the stories we tell throughout our organization are key. Right. And as Susan mentioned, these influencers, sometimes they're not the best ones. And think about the gossip that runs through your organization when you don't control those stories. Right. When you're not on top of the story. And story, of course, is also reinforced by language. There are certain means that we use, certain words and phrasings that we keep repeating to actually enforce culture. Like, for example, as I mentioned, one of the ones we use earlier, uh, which is how we do anything is how we do everything. Right? And so there's kind of like little phrases, or if it's to be, it's up to me. Right? Or I put the ship in leadership. Right? There's these little phrases and these little tools that we use to continuously enforce culture and bring people back to how we do things around here. And even more compact, you can put that in symbols. Right? If you hear about the past, symbols were things like your big car or the corner office, right? Or the very nicely embossed business cards or the, you know, these kind of things are like the clothing, right? And now look at us. You know, I mean, the clothing has already changed in this whole COVID world, right? So some status symbols are changing and we don't care about some of those material things anymore. Right in that minimalism strain that's been going on, people begin to care about more important things and how do we symbolize those? Right? How do we symbolize little things? And it can be bells, it can be logos, right? Even a logo uh, can be a symbol that once we see it, right, we see the golden arches, it immediately brings up that association, right? Good branding is logo magic in that sense, right? Because it's really symbols that immediately trigger a whole array of emotions and thoughts simply with using a little identifier. Right? And of course, then come the practices, like as I mentioned, how we do meetings, how we complete things, right? How do we run a meeting? If you go to most organizations, you can go in there and it's terrible, you know, how people treat each other, how nobody's paying attention, how everybody was, just wants to say their thing and is holding it the whole time and just waiting for the right opportunities to say whatever they want to say, whether it fits or not, right? And in the end, everybody goes out and it's like, okay, what did we just do here? You know, and one of the first things I, when I worked with a consulting company in my early career, uh, one of my project managers like, reminded me that every meeting costs money. We don't think about it, but think about the average hourly wage of $100 for a person and think about how many times we have meetings that are a complete waste of money and time. Right? So what are our practices? Right? It's true. Lumen, for example, we use Connect, Scan, Focus, Act, and we'll be happy to send you some information about that. That's a very simple tool that you can use to make sure that you structure your meetings in a way where A, you connect with people, and at the end, you walk out with actual action steps and clear decision-making tools, coming back to strategies about how you make decisions. Right? And then finally, of course, your identity, right? really the core of what you stand for in the world and what you want to create here. Because the future does require continuous attunement. Right? We are in a time of VUCA, right? We are in a time when things change all the time. And this is where we get to give up that there's, you know, this idea of a core business or innovation. That's another one of those dualisms, right? Core business or innovation. But that's not a mutually exclusive thing. On the contrary, actually, if you look at ideas, they evolve over time. Right? This is a framework we use where it's all about looking at any business model or any business process even as going through these stages from ideation from, oh, there's a new thing here, there's a signal here, let's explore that, 
oh, there is really something here, right? 90% don't make it past potential, but if there's make, something makes it past potential, then you begin to expand it, you incubate it, ultimately accelerate it, build a whole process around it. And then it's a proven process, you go into an efficiency strategy and mindset and culture. Right? And it's a very different mindset, even an understanding that there's even different cultures required at different stages of this process or different mindsets in the very least. And so really we get to manage a whole portfolio of business processes and business models continuously that eventually also become obsolete and die. And so it's not about either or, about core business or innovation. It's also about managing a continuum, right? Managing the DAO of culture and strategy in that sense. And this is where we come back to really overcoming that dualistic thinking all around us, right? Because it doesn't help and anybody who studied logic understands that yet right and wrong or true and false only exist in a limited system. And if we expand our view, if we go wider, we can always see more, right, Tessa? Exactly. Um, thanks so much, Philip. I really like appreciate how um, people may not have, have caught it, but we really tied it all the way back to even our strategy versus um, innovation is, an, is a changing opportunity for us where the idea of a strategic plan isn't what we're aiming for anymore, but really kind of that strategic innovation pipeline where our strategies are all being matured over time. And um, that's a topic for a whole future webinar, but I like that we got to squeeze it in there. We have um, um, your uh, landing page for all of you, and we'll go ahead and pop that link in the chat where you can download um, these slides. There's a link to an article um, and ways to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, since we just have um, a couple people, um, I wonder, um, Sharat, if we want to just open this up to questions for a few minutes. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, this is for both you, Tirza, and um, uh, Philip, and also our audience. Uh, there have been some connectivity issues with Zoom uh, this evening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have got a lot of messages on email and WhatsApp from a lot of people who had registered and just could not make it. So I do apologize for that, even though it's beyond our control. The good news is that there will be a recording and it will be sent out tomorrow, same time to all the people who registered to be here. And I have one question for both of you, actually. And that relates to the new uh, way of working in a hybrid environment. So are there any studies or what is your experience in terms of communicating that culture and strategy to people when you know they are not always at work? So is something getting lost in translation, et cetera? Yeah, um, actually what we found is that if you think about virtual work, it's very transactional. Right? You can go in there and you can actually work together, make decisions together. So you can work actually in forward strategy, but what people are missing is that cultural element, right? Is that part that actually makes you connected, right? And it's not surprising that so many people are looking for new positions right now because that loyalty to the company isn't there, right? There's no enculturation in that sense, right? You don't have experiences together in the you know, cafeteria, around the water cooler, around the hallways. That part is missing. So there's a, there's a lack of loyalty and engagement in some ways as a result of that, right? Because Going back to that idea of a vision without a plan, uh, so plan without a vision is drudgery. It's a little bit like that when we go into these meetings one after another, one Zoom meeting, one Teams meeting after another, and you can get work done. But it's right. sort of nearly like one sided, right? And so we're missing that other piece where we found that, you know, 
people are trying things like having games together or coffee nights or book clubs or other activities. And what we found is actually, if you work with people on culture consciously together, and you go on a learning journey together, that actually can create some of those effects as well and mitigate that, right? But it can really kind of, as you grow together as humans, because Tessa always likes to say that the difference between a group of people working together in a team is that they care about each other, right? And you don't get that from just getting stuff done online. I don't know. Tessa, do you want to add to that since it's, since yeah. I just. No, no, that was great. That was, a, that was um, a lot of what, of what I'd want to say. What I would add to that is um, because we get very good at like working together and moving things forward, but we don't have um, the kind of depth of relationship. We can think about our willingness to, um, to challenge or to create together as being kind of the depth of our psychological safety or kind of the strength of the connective tissue between us. And when we only exist on zoom together um, and we don't consciously build relationship and culture, the connection between us is very thin and feels very brittle, which means that we will just by kind of definition, hold back um, our, our creativity. We'll hold back our willingness to challenge. We'll hold back our willingness to contribute our greatest genius. And, um, and so what begins to suffer is innovation. It's, it's one thing for us to deliver on existing strategy and, and we can collaborate and do good work. Um, together, even with a very minimum investment, because we're professionals and we're, we've all gotten very good at this showing up on Zoom. But when it comes to actually creating something new together, that becomes a lot harder and, and sometimes just isn't there. And it requires different skills because it's absolutely doable. And I mean, virtual collaboration has been a long, uh, around long before COVID, right? I mean, for the last 20 years, I know I've worked online and even Terza lives in San Francisco and I you know, work in Berlin a lot. So even for there, we're working collaboratively all the time, but it requires different skills. And it requires a different level or base level of setting up connection between people to allow that. Right. One more quick question, because in the Middle East, I'm in touch with a lot of C-suite people. And sometimes they ask me uh, if you are doing a remote workshop on, let's say, the same topic for an organization based in the region. Uh, what's the sweet spot in terms of the number of people that can be in a room that can meaningfully engage with you, let's say, in a two hour session? That really depends because I mean, that's probably if you look at a typical classroom size in a school, it's actually about 18, 19, right? Because it's just enough people that uh, you can hide and just enough people that you won't be forgotten, right? So there's okay. about that size. And when we work with teams, we usually try and keep it a little smaller, even right? Where it's the eight to even 12 is already a lot, right? Because we go deeper people. That said, you can actually create larger events of hundreds of people as long as there is a breakdown where people actually get to kind of do the relating piece as well, right? And it's also not done with one, one webinar where you go and say, hey, we're going to just do this one webinar and everybody's going to learn about culture and then we're going to be okay. It's a little bit yeah. like putting the real people company thing on the wall, right? It requires practice, right? It requires training, just like, you know, we, we learn as children through modeling and through continuous application, right? This is the same thing when it comes to these cultural things. You want modeling and you want continuous application, and so it is also a path where you can take people on over time, but you can do it with hundreds of people in the room as long as you have those breakout opportunities 
for people to to kind of really deeply gel and connect. But, but, yeah. but what do you think, Tessa? Yeah, we think about those um, of having kind of cultural catalysts, or you can call them whatever you want to in your organization, but people with that capacity to hold a breakout room. And so they may not have all the skills of your facilitator, your leader, your trainer, um, but that they can actually facilitate a meaningful conversation and connection in the smaller. And so we do need like, people need to feel seen in order for those these things to work. And so having that ability to break out with um, qualified leaders really is what defines the maximum size, um, not as much like anything else. But as Philip said, if it's just um, one trainer to a classroom, your maximum size is hitting at that like 18 person. Right, great. And Dubai, as you know, is so cosmopolitan. We have 192 nationalities of the planet right here in Dubai. So sometimes when I visit organizations and let's say I'm in a conference room with 20 people, uh, most probably 19 different countries are represented in that group. So very diverse. And sometimes, you know, the same words or the same presentation can mean a lot of different things to different people. And I, and I noticed that because some are, uh, you know, shaking their heads in agreement and some are doing like that, but they actually mean yes. This is why that conversation is so important, right? That it's not, yeah. there's no right or wrong way to do things. There's just yeah. ways to continuously be in conversation about it. Like, like this morning, for example, I did a, uh, we're doing an entrepreneur's bootcamp with Siemens that we helped them create over the last six years. And in the bootcamp I had this morning, we had over 30 people from 17 nations, right? And all, all the way from yeah. East Coast, US, uh, all the way to Malaysia, right? And so very, very different people, very different attitudes around how do we show up? How do we connect? How do we, what's okay? What's not okay to say, right? And, yeah. and, and as I said, even the same word can have very different meanings, even like look at time, right? Yeah. A German looks at time very, very different than some of your neighbors down there. You know what I mean? It's like, so there's different concepts of how time works even. And this is why that meta is so important, why we have to have conversations about the things. Like even in our culture class for example to talk about concepts like authenticity and psychological safety and it's not as much important that it has to be defined a certain way what's more important is that your team actually talks about it and talks about what it means to them right because that's when it becomes real and tangible for people and it's not just a concept yeah great uh, great insights a lot of takeaways for me uh, we're going to share this recording with the larger audience uh, tomorrow same time so i want to thank both of you um, you know um, as always, I love to be part of your conversations and we'll get you back and we'll get our entire audience back on another day. I promise you that, um, you know, uh, like they say, uh, too much technology mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes it just goes haywire. So mm -hmm. there That's you cool. have it. Yeah. So I want to thank the uh, members in the audience uh, who've joined us today. And on a housekeeping note, we have three interesting webinars coming up. Uh, we are discussing demystifying Web3 on 28th June, eight panelists from four continents. And uh, that's going to be an interesting uh, conversation. We'll be debunking the myths around Web3. And the next one is another interesting topic, which is about mindfulness in the metaverse. Mindfulness in the metaverse that's coming up on 6th July. And finally, we, are, we have another topic, which is turning on the light for new world leadership. This is part of our Edgewalker series, a leadership series of webinars that we've been running. 
So I look forward to seeing you uh, hopefully in all three of these forthcoming webinars, but suit yourself, do register, and you'll always receive a recording from us. That's a promise we make at only webinars. Uh, finally, thank you to both my panelists. Uh, Teresa, appreciate your being here. Philip, yeah. my friend, thank you for always showing up. And uh, I always learn from both of you. So thank you. And thank you. see you on the other side. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.